Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church. My name is Shan Taylor. I'm the Baptist here, pastor here at EBC. And uh, you might be able to pick up on the fact that I don't normally do announcements, which means there's probably big news for the McDuffie family, all right? So <laughs> early yesterday morning at 4.30, uh, they welcomed Ruth and McDuffie into their family. And so little girl and mom are doing well. Uh, we, will, we have a meal train set up for them. You can look for the details of that on the EBC Women's Facebook page. So sign up for those slots, and we'll support them and, and celebrate with them. So exciting times. Uh, if I could point your attention to our connection card, which is in the back of the seat in front of you, or you can follow this QR code if you'd rather do it digitally. This is a way for us to get just some basic information if you're visiting with us this morning so that we can connect with you, answer any questions you might have, we're not going to try to sell you something or, or bother you. You can even indicate on the card how you want to be contacted, be that text message or phone call or in person, and we'll reach out to you in the way that you want to be uh, contacted. Um, we have coming up next week, Group Connect, which is an opportunity for you to meet some of our small group leaders and figure out which small group you might be best fit, uh, you might best fit in. I don't know why I can preach, but I can't do announcements. I don't know. It's... <laughs> We're offering a new format this fall uh, for our small groups, and it is based on discussing the sermon. This is just one of many different options. You don't have to do this. If you want to keep doing what you've been doing, that's awesome. But the handouts for that sermon discussion small group, they will be available in the little nook to the left of the coffee. And you'll, have, you'll see how they're marked according to the date there. Even if you're not going to be in a small group that is discussing the sermon, still, free to grab one of the, still feel free to grab one of these and use it as a note-taking tool during the sermon. So those, that's where they are. That's what they're available for. Um, small groups are super important. I would encourage you to get plugged into one. It's really important that we gather all together uh, for worship. But it's also important that you're around a, a, just a smaller group of people who are going to encourage you and sharpen you and help you to figure out how to more specifically put uh, God's Word into practice, since that's what we're going to do in small groups. All right, this is an exciting Sunday because we have three baptisms this morning, uh, but we also have coming up in September another opportunity for baptism, another one scheduled already. So if this is something that the Lord has been pressing on your heart as important, a good step of obedience, then I would encourage you to come and talk with me or any of your ministerial staff and we can get all those details lined up. Baptism is not an act of salvation. Instead, baptism is a demonstration of what God has already done in you. It's a picture of your unity with Christ. And so um, that's exactly what's going to happen this morning. Is we've got three uh, young believers who are going to show to the world that they are unified to Jesus. And so if that's something that you need to do, that's a step of obedience that you haven't taken yet, then I would encourage you to come and talk with me or uh, one of our staff. Um, but all that to say, here we go. Good morning. My name is Greg Allen. I'm the Children's Ministry Director here at uh, Emmanuel, and uh, it is my privilege to baptize uh, three young new believers here this morning. Um, so I am, uh, it is a great privilege to baptize Addison Cheslock here. She has been a part of my life for a long time. 
Uh, when I was single and uh, not uh, really plugged in anywhere, Alice and Frank, her, her parents, uh, kind of took me in and adopted me as Uncle Greg. And so I, it is an extreme privilege here to baptize Addison uh, with you today. So Addison, have you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes! profession of faith, I baptize you, my sister Addison, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, risen to walk in the Hi, my name is Major. And I'm Ailey. I grew up in church with my family, and a few years ago, I accepted Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior forever. I wanted to be baptized because I wanted to be a child of God and follow His Word and be faithful in Him for eternity. I accepted Jesus because I am a sinner. I want to be baptized because I accepted Jesus into my heart and I want the whole world to see. This is Major Smith and uh, he has been a part of the children's ministry for a long time and I was sad to see him uh, part uh, ways with the ministry uh, this last year because he moved up to students. He got too old. But I still had the privilege of uh, baptizing him and watching him grow in his faith. So, Major, have you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? By your profession of faith, I baptize you, uh, Major, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bury you Christ in baptism, moving the walk in the of life. And this is Major's sister, Maylee. Uh, Maylee has also made a profession of faith, and uh, she is going to demonstrate that to you today. So I still have Maylee for a few more years in my area, and it's going to be awesome to help her and disciple her in uh, how to live like Jesus. So Maylee, I think it's right there. So just there we go. Okay. Um, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Yes. Awesome. So by your profession of faith... I baptize you, my sister, Maylee, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, visit and walk in the newness of life. Amen. Well, what a joy uh, for us to partner with them and these young believers as they are showing the world that Jesus is their Lord. And again, I would encourage you, if that's something that you need to demonstrate to the world, that baptism is, is the way to do it. So come and speak with me about how we can line that up. I'm going to pray for us as we begin our service this morning. Father, we are so thankful uh, for new life in you. We're so thankful for these young believers and their obedience to your call. We ask, Father, that you would grow in all of us greater obedience. We ask, Father, that this morning as we praise you through these songs, that you would be blessed, that we would be the kind of worshipers that you seek, ones who worship in spirit and in truth, ones who live as living sacrifices for you and for your kingdom and for your glory. 
We ask, Father, that as we study your perfect and holy word, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds to understanding and would soften our hearts to transformation, that we would leave this place looking more like your Son because of the power of your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There we go. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, you're tired too. So for the first service, I had to go and do a backflip off this to get everybody going. So if you'll stand with me, I can't do a backflip. I can't even touch my toes. <laughs> Father God, Lord, we praise you, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity, Father, the privilege that it is to get to come and worship you today, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our past, Lord God. I pray that you would allow it to be your words, Lord, and not as ours. Help us to take those words and apply it to our everyday lives, Lord. I pray that we would just continue to live a life that just pursues you in everything that we do and every decision that we make, Father. I pray that it would be all about you and bringing glory to your name, Father. Again, I thank you for each and every person in this room. I pray that you would use each and every one of us, Lord, and give us divine appointments each and every day that we're able to minister to those in this lost and broken world, Father, and show them the hope that we have as believers. Lord, in your beautiful name I pray, Lord. Amen. Grab your Bibles and you grab your seat and open with me to Jonah chapter 4. The book of Jonah chapter 4. We are wrapping up our study through the book of Jonah. We've come to the end of Jonah's story. And as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but to think of the great films throughout history that have had awesome twist endings, a surprise ending that helped you to reevaluate the whole movie and think of it completely differently. Um, when I was in college, I was super into film, so much so that I called it film instead of movies. That's how you know people are into it. I, I never got to the point where I called the movie theater the cinema, though. That was just too far, okay? So, um, but, so I was thinking kind of historically, what are the movies that have this great twist ending, a surprise ending? And so I thought of maybe the most famous ones would be first Citizen Kane, which is super old, but the big twist ending was that Rosebud was the sled all along. And then we have uh, Psycho, where we find out that Norman Bates, he was the killer all along. And then Planet of the Apes, well, they were on Earth all along, right? And then uh, Fight Club, well, the narrator, he was Tyler Durden all along, and then Sixth Sense, uh, Bruce Willis's character, well, he was dead all along, right? And so these great twist endings, these surprise endings, they give you some kind of new information that helps you to reevaluate the entire story and to understand it in a completely different way. And in that sense, we should actually put Jonah in this same category because as we get to the ending of Jonah, we have this twist we have this surprise that gives us new information that helps us to reread and to rethink the whole story of Jonah in a completely new way. So you'll remember where Jonah is right now at this point in our story. I'll just kind of catch you up. He was called by God to bring a message to the Ninevites, but he did not want to do that. And so he ran away, he tried to get on a ship and to flee from God's presence. God sent a storm to stop him in his tracks and to prove his sovereignty over all of the world. Jonah, being stopped, then ends up in the water, swallowed by a fish, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, where he finally comes to the conclusion, I guess I'll be obedient, I guess I'll go to Nineveh. So then in chapter 3, he goes to Nineveh, 
and he delivers uh, what seems to be only part of the message that God had for him. He talks about God's judgment. And the people of Nineveh, uh, realizing that God is going to destroy them because of their wickedness and their sin, they repent. They turn away from their sin, they, and they cry out for mercy. And God gave them this timeline. He said, in 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. But then because of their repentance, because they turned away from their sin, the 40 days comes and the 40 days goes, and God has had mercy on them. He has not destroyed them for their wickedness. And this is kind of where we end chapter 3 and pick up in chapter 4. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So then picking up in chapter 4, verse 1. But it, meaning this act of mercy that God has for the Ninevites, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So this is already repetitive in English, but it doesn't even capture the full thrust of the statement in the original language. It's actually even more repetitive. It has even more emphasis. You could translate it more literally that this displeased Jonah with great displeasure and he was furious. He was furious about what? About God's mercy for the Ninevites. This becomes clear as we keep reading. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So apparently there was some kind of a conversation that happened earlier in the story that we were not aware of. Be it a conversation between Jonah and God or maybe just something Jonah was thinking to himself. This is what I said. This is what I was thinking. That you would have mercy. That you would be gracious. And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew about God's grace, and it was actually for this reason that he fled to Tarshish, or tried to flee to Tarshish. It wasn't actually because of his fear, not primarily because of his fear of the Ninevites and their wickedness coming against him. It was primarily because of his hatred for the Ninevites. He was concerned not that he would be killed. He was concerned that the Ninevites would not be killed if he brought God's word to them, that they would receive God's grace. This is an ironic statement coming from Jonah, especially because the only time we ever get another mention of Jonah in the Bible is in 2 Kings 14. And what is he doing there? It's a short passage, but very quickly he's bringing a message of grace and mercy to the people of God. They are living under and serving a wicked king. And they deserve to be punished for that, but God says, I'm going to prosper you anyway. I'm going to have mercy and grace in this situation. That's the only other time that we hear of Jonah, is him bringing a message of grace. And here, he was refusing to bring a message of grace to, God's, uh, to, to the Ninevites. He was essentially was thinking in his heart, well, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand why you would have grace for the Israelites, for your people. But why in the world would you have grace for the Ninevites? They don't deserve your grace, which is an oxymoronic statement. 
Okay? It might be something that Jonah thought or maybe even said, but it is a statement of nonsense because the very definition of grace is to receive a good thing that you do not deserve. Now, in the Bible, when we talk about God's grace, we are specifically talking about receiving forgiveness of sin, which none of us deserve. What we deserve is the just punishment for sin. But God has made it clear to us through his word that when we turn away from our sin in repentance, we turn to Jesus in faith. God has this free gift of grace for us, forgiveness, that he welcomes us back into his presence. And so, no, the Ninevites did not deserve God's grace, but that's what makes it grace, And the people of God equally did not deserve God's grace. And you do not deserve God's grace. And I do not deserve God's grace. And if we did, it wouldn't be grace. And so it is beyond bizarre that these words are even coming out of Jonah's mouth. Because he was willing to bring a message of God's grace to one group of people, but not to another group of people. Look at verse 3. He's how torn up he is about this. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now here, understand exactly what's going on. Jonah is not just being a drama queen. He is being a drama queen. But more than that, he is trying to force God's hand into punishing the Ninevites. He's actually giving God an ultimatum. He's essentially saying, okay, God, if this is the kind of God you're going to be, I don't want to be your prophet anymore. You're going to have to choose. Are you going to kill me or are you going to kill the Ninevites? We see that this is what Jonah is saying as we keep reading, because the Lord responded to him. Verse four, do you do well to be angry? And the gall of Jonah, he doesn't even respond to God. He gives him the cold shoulder. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he set to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. We already know that the 40 days has come and gone because the people have recognized that they've received God's grace. Jonah knows that. But he has given this ultimatum. All right, God, choose between me and the Ninevites. One of them needs to die. And he goes out and he sits on the side of the hill. He builds a little temporary structure to give him some shade because he's going to watch the show. This is almost like when the Civil War was first began, people didn't really have a good idea of how serious it was, how bad it was going to be. And they would set up little picnics on the side of the hill to watch the battles, which is pretty sick and twisted. And what Jonah is doing here is sick and twisted. He's waiting to watch the show. He is hoping for a Sodom and Gomorrah type moment that God is just going to wipe Nineveh off of the map. He is completely missing out on the amazing thing that God has already done in the Ninevites' lives. And what God wants to continue to do in the lives of the Ninevites. His hatred for them has completely blinded him to what God is doing. And so what we learn from this, and the the hard message for us this morning is this. Is that prejudice blinds us to the work of God. Prejudice blinds us 
to the work of God. Jonah couldn't see it, couldn't see what God was doing because he, his hatred for the Ninevites was too deep. And this is the surprise ending that we didn't see coming. Or maybe you've read this story before and you saw it coming. But imagine this is the first time you've ever read the book of Jonah. Now knowing that it was his hatred that motivated him all along, his prejudice that motivated him all along, there are several things throughout the book that now make more sense. Just like a good twist ending, you reread it and you understand the, the, you see the movie more clearly. We see the story more clearly. We already said that we learned from chapter one why he ran was ultimately not because of fear, because of hatred. But then we see him on the ship. God has already, has now convinced Jonah that he is sovereign, not just in Israel, but everywhere. So what would the logical thing be to do would be for Jonah to go, okay, God, you're sovereign everywhere. I guess I'll go to Nineveh. But that's not what he does. Instead, he says, all right, guys, throw me in the water. In other words, his hatred for Nineveh is so deep that even though he now believes that God is sovereign over all places, he would rather drown than bring a message of grace to the Ninevites. And then he gets swallowed up by the fish, and he's in the fish for three days and three nights. And in the small group, we had this discussion about I wonder how many days and nights it would take me to get the picture, right? And some of us were like, oh, you know, an hour, I'd be ready to go. And someone was like, I don't know, I'm pretty hard-headed. Maybe it would take me three days and three nights. But we go, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish is a long time. Why did it take him so long to figure out what God was doing? Why did it take him so long to be willing to go to the Ninevites? It was because of how deep his hatred was for them. And then he finally goes in chapter 3, and we were confused. Why did Jonah only preach half of the message? Why did he only preach about God's judgment and not about God's grace and mercy? And now we know why. It's because he did not want the Ninevites to know about God's grace and mercy. That at the end of chapter 3, they were left wondering, who knows, maybe God will be merciful. And so his partial obedience was ultimately due to his hatred, his prejudice. And so we have this moment in the story, this big reveal where now we understand and we see more clearly. But here's the hard thing, church, is what Holy Spirit wants to accomplish through this text is that there would be the same big reveal in your heart and in my heart that you would look back over your story with greater clarity and understand your actions more fully because you have been previously blind to your prejudice. That's what the Holy Spirit is challenging us with in this text, that there is a plot twist not just in Jonah, but there's a plot twist in our lives. Now I understand why I was so hesitant to share the gospel with that person. It's because of a secret prejudice that I had in my heart. Here's the thing, is we live in a world that tells us to follow our hearts. You know, there's a, there's a song, listen to your heart, right? <laughs> it's everywhere. Uh, that's not just one song. It's follow your heart, listen to your heart, obey your feelings. That is the narrative that our culture tells us over and over and over. 
But what does the Bible tell us? Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart is lying to you because your heart wants to convince you of half-truths and easy falsehoods that make you comfortable and allow you to stay in your prejudice and your disobedience. So don't listen to your heart. Listen to God's word and honestly examine your heart to find the prejudice that is hidden inside of it. Because when we allow that prejudice to continue, we are blind to to God's work. And if we continue in that blindness, not only will we miss out on what God is doing, but we could also hinder what God is doing. And so the very hard question that we have to wrestle with this morning from this text is this. Who do I struggle to offer grace to? Who do I struggle to present the gospel to? Now, as we think about this word prejudice, we might go to big, obvious categories. A person's skin color or a person's nationality or a person's person's economic standing. And that is absolutely maybe the way that the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning about your prejudice in those areas. But maybe it's something more subtle. Maybe you have a prejudice against a certain type of sin. Or a certain sin specifically. Well, yeah, I can offer the gospel to these people, but to that group over there, they're too far gone. Or to that group over there, they don't deserve God's grace. Now, you would never say that out loud, but in the deceitfulness of your heart, you might hold that prejudice. Or maybe you have a prejudice against even just one person, a family member or a friend, and you just know their story so well that you think there's no chance that God's going to save them. Maybe you have prejudice against one person because they have sinned against you, and you're unwilling to present grace to them because you don't want them to be forgiven because you can't forgive them. And so maybe it's big, maybe it's a whole people group that you wrestle with prejudice, maybe it's just one person, but regardless of what it is, it is blinding you to the work of God. It is potentially hindering the work that He wants to accomplish through you in the world. And so we need God to cure us of this blindness, to heal us of this prejudice. And this is what He wants to do because He loves us. And He loves our neighbors too much to leave us blinded by our prejudice. And so we see Him, as we keep reading, taking action in Jonah's life to address this problem, this blindness. Looking now at uh, verses 6 through 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So apparently it's very hot and the little booth that Jonah made was not very good at protecting him and providing for him. So God supernaturally, miraculously causes this leafy plant to grow up and to cover over Jonah to give him shade. 
Now, if you're paying attention throughout the book of Jonah, God is appointing a lot of things. First, he appoints Jonah as the prophet in Jonah's disobedience. So then he appoints the wind, and he appoints the storm, and he appoints the fish, and he appoints his word to work miraculously in the hearts of the Ninevites. And here we see God continuing to appoint, continuing to sovereignly work towards his end. And he, as the sovereign king, will not leave Jonah in his prejudice. And so he is going to do something, teach him a lesson through this plant. Kind of a strange way to teach, but God's a lot smarter than me, so he can do whatever he wants to do, I guess, all right? So Jonah, as we finish out verse 6, was exceedingly glad because of the plant, It's a little less clear in English, but in Hebrew, this is a directly parallel statement from verse 1, when we learned that Jonah was displeased exceedingly, and now we see that Jonah is pleased exceedingly. And we, when we are forced to compare those emotions and the source of those emotions, it just shows how big of a problem Jonah has in his heart. He's greatly displeased by God's grace for these people that he hates, and he is greatly pleased by this act of grace and mercy for him, something that ultimately is just providing him comfort. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Again, supernaturally, God is causing this to happen. Verse 8, and when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. It was already hot. God made it hotter. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. He's saying, all right, God, if this is what you're going to choose, you're going to choose the Ninevites over me, then just do it. Finish me off. And we see that God is using, he's appointing the plant and the worm and the heat as a way of waking Jonah up and correcting his prejudice and redirecting his life. And what that tells us is that our, our, our first statement, which was prejudice blinds us to the work of God, is not the, actually the end of the sentence. Instead, as we keep reading the story, we learn this. It's when prejudice blinds us to the work of God, God opens our eyes through His fatherly discipline. When prejudice blinds us to the work of God, God opens our eyes, cures us of our blindness through His fatherly discipline. As we think through the end of chapter 3, when the Ninevites are just crying out, who knows, maybe God will be merciful. And then Jonah, at the beginning of chapter 4, says, I knew you were going to be merciful. That is supposed to jump out at us and grab our hearts and go, oh, Jonah, how could you be so off? supposed to be this dramatic, drastic moment where we clearly see the wickedness of his prejudice. But here's the thing, is it's not just supposed to be about Jonah. Because it's really easy to recognize other people's problems, other people's shortcomings and failings. Why? Because we're looking from the outside in. 
We're allowing our hearts to deceive us, and when we do not confront that we have the exact same problem. This is a bad way to read the Bible. Jonah had a real problem here. That's not why Holy Spirit put this story in the Word of God. It's because we have a real problem, and Jonah shows it to us. When we read the Bible, we are supposed to stop and say, no, 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 I'm Jonah, and you're Jonah. And so are you, and so is every single one of us. When you're reading through the Gospels and you go, goodness gracious, how did the Pharisees get it so wrong? No, no, no. I'm a Pharisee, and you're a Pharisee, and we're all Pharisees. And all of us need this correction. All of us need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to help us to see how we are blinded by our prejudice. And so sometimes that needs to happen by seeing in other people's stories. This is exactly what David needed, right? When he uh, committed adultery and then orchestrated the murder of uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, the prophet Nathan was sent by God. And what did Nathan say? Thus saith the Lord, David, you've messed up. No, that's not what he said. Instead, he told David this story of a a rich man who took a poor man's only sheep, the sheep that he loved so much, and he slaughtered that sheep. And David, in hearing someone else's story, was outraged. said, this man deserves to be punished. And what did Nathan say? You were the man. And this is exactly what Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning. You are the man. I am the man. We are the ones who are blinded by our prejudice. Be it large or small, all of it is keeping us from being faithful to God's call to bring the gospel to all people, all tribes, all languages, all nations, all tongues, whether we are comfortable with them or uncomfortable with them, whether we look like them or don't look like them, whether we eat the same foods or different foods, whether we like them or don't like them, God wants the gospel to go to all people. And sometimes our prejudice is keeping us from answering that call. And in this case, the Holy Spirit looks us deep in the eyes and says, you are the man. But we have to understand and remember that God's goal in disciplining us is not to punish us, but to correct us, to provide an opportunity for growth, a way to remove our blinders. And that this is not just only for our benefit, but our immaturity, our prejudice, is actually a hindrance to God's kingdom growth. What did Paul say in in Romans chapter 10 when he was talking about the importance of bringing the gospel to people? He said, how then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I would add to that this morning, how are we to preach to them if we hate them so much? And so the Holy Spirit is opening our eyes through His fatherly discipline. He's making us aware of our prejudice. 
And now as we finish out our text, we'll see how he is going to correct us and redirect us. Verse 9, God is, he's done these miraculous things through the plant, and now he's going to prove his point through the plant. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, if God ever asks you a question, you should notice from Scripture that it's probably a trap, okay? <laughs> a good trap, a trap that you probably want to fall into. But that's just a pattern we see throughout Scripture. Be careful how you answer God's questions. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. All right, it's kind of a, a strange last phrase to end the whole book on, but it's giving us such an extreme example to look towards. God is saying, Jonah, this is how messed up your priorities are. This is how crooked your heart is. You care more about this plant than you care about any kind of life in the city of Nineveh, let alone the 120,000 people who do not know me. They don't know the right hand from the left. They don't know who I am, that I'm a God of judgment and justice, but also I'm a God of mercy and grace. They don't know this. And you care more about this plant that you had nothing to do with, and all it did was give you comfort. You care more about that than you do about these people. So, Jonah, instead of looking at what you care about, look at what I care about. And this is where we see the correction. Once our eyes have been opened, what, the way that we find the right way to think, the right way to believe, the right way to love, is by looking at God's character. And this is, finishes out our sentence, which is when prejudice blinds us to the work of God, God opens our eyes through His fatherly discipline and sets our focus on His character. He sets our focus on His character. Because here's the thing, it doesn't do us any good to have our eyes opened if we're looking to the wrong place. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, me and my buddy Joe Arsenault and David Giganti, two men that I, I feel are good friends, but I don't feel confident how to pronounce their last names. Um, <laughs> We went uh, target shooting at David's house, and um, I, I've been shooting, I don't know, eight, ten times in my life. If you count BB guns, maybe 20 times, okay? So I'm a real expert on the subject. And uh, they were kind of walking me through some tips and tricks or whatever to get better, and they said, oh, uh, you're supposed to shoot with both eyes open. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, both eyes open. I was like, I thought that was just in the movie Pocahontas. And um, good film reference there for you. But and I was like, okay, I mean... You were a Marine and a cop for longer than I've been alive. You're special forces. I think I'm going to trust your expertise on the field, okay? So, so I, I'm trying it out, and I'm going, here's the problem, guys. When I have both eyes open, I see two targets. I don't know which target to shoot at. They're like, no, you don't. I'm like, well, no, I, I definitely do see two targets. I don't, I don't think you do. And so I actually I, I researched it, and the crazy thing is that if you practice long enough with both eyes open, your brain will learn to completely ignore the wrong target. You see it, but you do not see it anymore. 
And so your brain learns which target to focus on. I thought I was doing a great job and really hitting the target, and then I realized I'm hitting the wrong target. I'm focused completely in the wrong place. I'm shooting a good foot to the right of where I thought I was shooting. Well, here's the issue, guys. It doesn't matter if God opens our eyes. If we look to the wrong character to set the standard, we're going to miss the target every single time. We have to set our focus on the right target, the right standard of love, the right standard of purity and holiness, which is God, His character, not what we think is good and right, not what the world says is love. The world does not define love. God defines love. And so we have to set our focus on His character if we are going to love in the way that He wants us to love. If we're going to love in a way that uh, corrects our prejudice. You know, Jonah, here in the text, he claimed to have pity for the death of this plant. But do you think he actually felt bad for the plant? Or do you think he just missed the comfort and the personal benefit that he received from the plant? And is that a picture of the kind of weak, selfish love that we have for other people? That we only care for people's well-being if they provide comfort and benefit to our lives? That's not a good picture of love. That is not how God loves. He loves selflessly, abundantly, And so we have to find our correction here in God's example. He says, think about what you pity and compare it to what I pity. Think about how you love and compare it to how I love. And in his character, we find what we should be striving for. We find the target that we should set our focus on, which is... A love without prejudice. A love that brings the gospel to all people. A love that is willing to sacrifice our comfort in order to see and do the work of God. Because here's the real issue. Here's the the root of the problem with prejudice. Every single time that prejudice happens, it is because we fail to see people how God sees them. That we, because of our culture, we determine who is valuable and who is not valuable based off of the standards that we set or based off of how comfortable they make us or based off of how much benefit they can provide to our lives. And this is not how God sees people and this is not how he determines his love for them. He loves them abundantly, selflessly, endlessly because they were made in his image and that's the real problem when we don't see people the right way it's because we don't see the image of god in them the bible tells us that every single person is made in the image of god every single person regardless of how our culture values them is of infinite value because they were made in the image of god And when we see someone and we have a prejudice against them, we don't value them, we are forgetting whose image they are made in. We think they're just another person. 
We think they're just ordinary or regular. Or... And I love how C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. And they are all destined for either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You've never talked to an ordinary person. You've only ever talked to someone who is an image bearer of God. And if this is how we would see people, then we would not be prejudiced against them. We would see them as someone who holds God's very image inside of them. Then we would want the gospel to go to them, regardless of what our culture says about them. Regardless of how they make us feel, we would love them for who is inside of them. So church, are we willing to listen to the Holy Spirit? He looks us in the face and he says, you are the man. Now, I know this is not the happy ending we were hoping for. If only we had ended with chapter 3. That's the good Disney ending, right? Everybody got saved. We're all good to go. And then, nope, God's got more for us. But let me encourage you. There is hope here. It's not written out in black and white, but I think it's, it's there if we look. How do we know the story of Jonah? I mean, there are many, many details in this text that we could not know unless Jonah told the story himself. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but Jonah doesn't look very good in this story, which tells us that we have hope to believe that God did a miraculous thing in Jonah's heart too. That this act of fatherly discipline removed his blindness of prejudice It set his focus on God's character, and it changed Jonah's heart. And this gives me incredible confidence that if God can change Jonah's heart, he can change my heart too. He can change your heart. He can take away that prejudice and give you true, selfless, God-like love for the whole world. More than that, if you're here this morning and you've never received God's grace, He can change your heart. The Bible makes it clear that God's desire is that all people would come to Him in faith and repentance and receive the free gift of grace. Forgiveness for sins. Though we do not deserve it, God is willing to give it to us if we would turn from our sin and believe in Jesus. God has the power to change your heart. And I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this very morning. And so we're going to have a time of response. And as believers in the room, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cry out for forgiveness. God, please forgive me of my prejudice. Please open my eyes. Please set my focus on your character. Please help me to be a help, not a hindrance to the building of your kingdom. 
But if you're here this morning and you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, you're not exactly sure what it means to be saved, but you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, then come and talk with me in the front down here. And I can show you from God's word how you can receive his gift of grace. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. Even though it challenges us so deeply, we are thankful that you do not leave us in the deceit of our hearts. That you open our eyes and you correct us. Thank you, Lord, that you want to use us to build your kingdom. We do not want to stand in your way anymore because of our prejudice. So help us to see people how you see them. Help us to love people how you love them. Father, we are thankful again. We praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, go ahead and stand, and as you stand, move how the Holy Spirit comes.